Hi, and welcome to the Living Room Scripture Lessons. My name is Brad Constantine, and this set of lessons is from the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official recording of the Church, every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. There are several other Come Follow Me resources to help with your Gospel and Scripture study. These lessons tend to go a little deeper into the doctrine than most resources. Hopefully this resource will be different enough from the others that you'll come back each week. On the Living Room Scripture Lesson website is a digital version of the lessons, which has more material than can be mentioned in the podcast. You can download that PDF resource and use it as you like. As with other online resources, you can like, share, and subscribe to the podcasts. Again, welcome to this Come Follow Me resource. I hope you like it. Hi, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me podcast. I'm Brad Constantine. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. If you've been here for a while, welcome back. Today's discussion is going to be on uh, lesson number 38, and it covers the time frame of September 23rd through the 29th, and we're going to be covering the um, Epistle to the Galatians, chapters 1 through 6. Just a brief overview of this particular uh, epistle. First of all, we're not sure exactly who the audience is, if it's to the southern region of the of the Galatians, um, then it was probably written about um, 48 A.D. If it was to the northern um, Galatians, then it was probably written around 57. Now, some believe that because the style of the book is similar to the book of Romans, that maybe it's uh, that the conclusion is probably that it was written around 57. Um, and so that's kind of what most people think. Um, and so these are people that Paul has baptized and he's organized the church among them. The theme of it is that uh, Paul is alarmed when he learned that false teachings were creeping into the lives of the Galatian converts. Many had rejected the teachings of the atonement and reverted to following the, the law of Moses. Uh, Paul wrote to urge the saints to return to the higher law of the gospel. And so he thought that works alone are not sufficient for salvation but that we must rely on our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the overarching theme of uh, Galatians. There's an apostasy that's begun, and uh, some of them are still living the law of Moses, which he's trying to teach them to get away from and to, to go to the higher law. All right. Um, the first few verses, again, is just the greetings. Verse 3, he mentions grace and peace, meaning he's greeting to both Greek and uh, to Jews. Verse 6, uh, he says, Here I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So he's already seeing an apostasy already started. Um, there's a quote here that I've got that says, Certain Christian Jews, which were called Judaizers, had followed Paul and Barnabas to the area of the Galatian branches and had begun to counteract their efforts with the Gentiles by persuading these converts that they must keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. The result was disastrous to the new and growing church, for apostasy from the pure and unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ began to set in. And so that's what's happening here. That was a quote from George Horton. Um, so he's already seen that happen. This is, uh, if this is 57 AD, uh, this is only like 20 some odd years after Jesus' uh, resurrection. Uh, down to verse um, 18, after three years I went up to Jerusalem. He's giving, uh, in this ch first chapter, he's kind of giving his credentials as being an apostle, um, that he um, has been called, he's been uh, ordained, and uh, all the works that he's done. And then in verse 3 he mentions how after his conversion that he went to, um, 
to visit Peter. It says, uh, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. It's kind of an opportunity for, for Paul to have heard directly from Peter and to learn about the Savior's life since he hadn't been there to witness it himself. Verse 19, but other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. And by now, uh, by that time, James, who is the Lord's brother, or more correctly, I guess, half-brother, <clears throat> was a member of the First Presidency, probably. So, anyway, he's, he's given him the greeting here in the first chapter. Let's go to chapter 2, um, verse 1. He says, <clears throat> Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And then verse 3, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he's arguing here to the saints that, that uh, the law of Moses was no longer necessary, and to prove it, uh, he didn't uh, have Titus be circumcised uh, as he went with him, even though he was a Gentile, uh, which kind of goes against uh, the other time that, that he took Timothy with him, and he did circumcise Timothy, but that was more of a necessity and a convenience to help him be a teacher, as opposed to uh, doing anything according to the law of Moses, and so there was a bit of a difference there between Timothy and Titus. Um, one he did circumcise, the other one he didn't. And uh, so anyway, he, he's showing them here that Titus didn't uh, need to be circumcised, even though he was a, a Greek convert. Uh, down to verse 9, when James, Cephas, and John, and uh, we would probably just call them Peter, James, and John, who seem to be pillars, in other words, they're members of the First Presidency, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So this is his uh, description or explanation of being called as an apostle, uh, that Peter, James, and John had called both he and Barnabas to serve and that they're going to go among the Gentiles while Peter, James, and John will stay with the Jews and teach them. Uh, but notice in verse 11 what happens here. He says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And so now there's this disagreement that's happening here. We've read about this before. Um, but uh, Peter already knew that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. Um, but there were some things that were happening here that Peter was not doing that were correct. And Paul is trying to, to fix that. Now, Peter is the senior apostle. So... Uh, really, the junior apostles are supposed to follow in line here with what the senior is saying. Uh, but Paul is uh, arguing with, with Peter, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that here. Um, <clears throat> even apostles and prophets, being mortal and subject to like passions as other men, have prejudices which sometimes are reflected in ministerial assignments and decisions. But the marvel is not the isolated disagreements on details, but the near universal unity on basic principles. Not the occasional personality conflicts, but the common acceptance for the good of the work of the faults of others. Now we know in the current Quorum of the Twelve that they're uh, strong personalities and they have differences of opinion, but they are unified in the decisions that they make. It is not the conflict between Paul and Barnabas which concerns us, but the fact that they, being even as we are, rose thereafter to spiritual heights, where they saw visions, received revelations, and made their callings and elections sure. The fact of their disagreement thus bearing witness that we, in our weaknesses, can also press forward to that unity and perfection which shall assure us of salvation. And that's from the Doctrinal New Testament Commentary. Uh, but Peter, no doubt, had his side of the story. Fear may not have been his motive, and Paul may have acted prematurely. Paul admits that the mission of the pillars was to the Jews, 
if intent, in other words, the first presidency was going to the Jews, if intense Jewish converts reacted negatively to the Jerusalem Council decision, James and Peter may have sought a transition delay to convince the stubborn. If Peter labored to bring this about, Paul may have pushed conformity to the council's ruling ahead of his time. Paul evidently retold the story because the Judaizers used the episode to give the impression that Peter agreed with them. The incident is instructive in showing two strong leaders agreeing on a principle that came by revelation but applying it with different timing. Paul does not say that Peter permanently separated himself from the Gentiles. These candid examples show how revelation gave or how revelation came after deep searching. Paul re reviewed them, of course, to show that church leaders stood with him in teaching salvation through the revealed gospel, not through the Mosaic law. And that was from uh, Anderson Understanding Paul, page 158. Um, and then again from the Doctrine of New Testament Commentary. Peter temporized for fear of offending Jewish semi-converts who still kept the law of Moses. Without question, if we had the full account, we would find Peter reversing himself and doing all in his power to get the Jewish saints to believe that the law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ and no longer applied to anyone other, either Jew or Gentile. So we just don't, we probably just don't have the full account here of, of how this was resolved. Uh, there is harmony in the first presidency of Corner 12 today. President Hinckley said, each man is different. We speak from various backgrounds and experiences. We discuss ways to improve and strengthen the work. At the outset of these discussions, there may be various points of view, but before the discussion is ended, there is total unanimity, else no action is taken. The Lord himself has declared that such unity is an absolute necessity. And that was President Hinckley from 1992. All right, let's go down to verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So here he's talking about that even our works are not enough to keep the law, and so we have to have faith in Christ uh, in order to be justified. The Greek meaning underlying the word justify is to make righteous, to declare righteous, or to acquit. The implication is that when individuals are justified, they are looked upon as righteous and as though they had committed no sin. In order for us to receive salvation, we must be able to stand before the Lord as just persons, as righteous individuals, not as sinners. And that was from the Studies in the Scriptures, page, page 88. When we truly exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, are baptized by immersion for the remission of sins, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise, seals or ratifies these actions, and we are justified by having our guilt transferred to the Savior, who made an infinite atonement for us, and he now looks upon us again as just persons, or as having never committed sin. Having done the foregoing under the influence of the Holy Ghost, we continue on in faithful observance of our covenants to sanctify our lives so that we will be prepared to enter into the celestial kingdom of God. A modern scholar explained clearly the difference between justification and sanctification in Paul's discussion. In its theological sense, justification is a forensic or purely legal term. It describes what God declares about the believer, not, not what he does to change the, the believer. In fact, justification affects no actual change whatsoever in the sinner's nature or character. Justification is a divine judicial edict. It changes our status only, but it, ca it carries ramifications that guarantee other changes will follow. 
In biblical terms, justification is a divine verdict of not guilty, fully righteous. It is the reversal of God's attitude toward the sinner, whereas he formally condemned, he now vindicates. Although the sinner once lived under God's wrath, as a believer he or she is now under God's blessing. Justification is more than simple pardon. <clears throat> pardon alone would still leave the sinner without merit before God. So when God justifies, he imputes divine righteousness to the sinner. Christ's own infinite merit thus becomes the ground on which the believer stands before God. So justification elevates the believer to a realm of full acceptance and divine privilege in Jesus Christ. Justification is distinct from sanctification because in justification God does not make the sinner righteous. He declares that person righteous. Notice how justification and sanctification are distinct from one another. Justification imputes Christ's righteousness to the sinner's account. Sanctification imparts righteousness to the sinner personally and practically. Justification takes place outside sinners and changes their standing. Sanctification is internal and changes the believer's state. Justification is an event. Sanctification a process. Those two must be distinguished but can never be separated. God does not justify whom he does not sanctify, and he does not sanctify whom he does not justify. Both are essential elements of salvation, and that was by MacArthur in uh, Faith Works. So justification, sanctification, uh, the justification is being acquitted, or it's as if we didn't sin, and then sanctification is actually a process of within, of changing, and that's where we become pure and holy before God. Uh, verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And here, Peter and Paul, both of whom are, were apostles, both of whom received revelation, saw angels and were approved of the Lord, and both of whom shall inherit the fullness of the Father's kingdom. These same righteous and mighty preachers disagreed on a basic matter of church policy. Peter was the president of the church, Paul an apostle, and Peter's junior in the church hierarchy was subject to the direction of the chief apostle, but Paul was right. And Peter was wrong. Paul stood firm, determined that they should walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Peter temporized for fear of offending Jewish semi-converts who still kept the law of Moses. The issue was not whether the Gentiles should receive the gospel. Peter himself had received the revelation that God was no respecter of persons and that those of all lineages were now to be heirs of salvation along with the Jews. Further, the heads of the church in council assembled with the Holy Ghost guiding their minds and directing their decisions had determined that the Gentiles who received the gospel should not be subject to the law of Moses. The Jewish members of the church, however, had not been able to accept this decision without reservation. They themselves continued to conform to Mosaic performances and they expected Gentile converts to do likewise. Peter sided with them. Paul publicly withstood the chief apostle and won the debate, as could not otherwise have been the case. Without question, if we had the full account, we would find Peter reversing himself and doing all in his power to get the Jewish saints to believe that the law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ and no longer applied to anyone, either Jew or Gentile. You can understand from their point of view how difficult this was to, to change, to, to abandon, as it were, the law of Moses when they'd been living it for centuries. And then all of a sudden now to, uh, to just abandon it completely because of the gospel of Jesus Christ was a very difficult thing for those that were so ingrained in it. And so this is the dilemma that they're facing, and especially those that were Jewish converts. Peter's trying to keep them in the church by, by saying it's okay to do some of these mosaic performances still. While Paul, who's the 
advocate for the Gentiles is trying to get them to distance themselves from the law of Moses as quickly as they can, which is the correct approach, but uh, they're trying to do it in practical ways. So that's what's going on here between Paul and Peter. All right, let's move on to chapter 3. Um, in chapter 3, let's go down to verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Um, Abraham offered sacrifice, notwithstanding this had the gospel preached to him, that the offering of sacrifice was only to point the mind forward to Christ. We infer from these remarkable words of his, of his to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. That's from John 8:56. So then, because the ancients offered sacrifice, it did not hinder their hearing the gospel, but served, as he said before, to open their eyes and enable them to look forward to the time of the coming of the Savior and to rejoice in his redemption. And that's by uh, Joseph Smith. Verse 11, but, no man, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. In other words, we can't live the law perfectly. We can never live the law well enough to be exalted. It's our faith in Christ that will save us. And so that's uh, what, what Paul here is trying to tell him here about justification and uh, living the law. That the, Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that they might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, Gentile converts here are adopted into Abraham's covenant blessing. We know that those that... Uh, Join the church or adopted into the uh, all the blessings of Abraham. Uh, most of us, however, are literal descendants through Ephraim. Uh, he, in talking about the law of Moses, he about down in verse 24 mentions that the law was our schoolmaster, and it's to bring them to Christ. <clears throat> and that's the purpose of the law of Moses. All right, let's go down to chapter four. <clears throat> Uh, again, talking about the law of Moses in verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And here he's talking about <clears throat> becoming sons of, uh, of God through our adoption, through our obedience, through our baptism. Uh, verse 6, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth <clears throat> the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. <clears throat> What, what Paul is suggesting here in verse 6 is that through the atonement of Christ, we can be adopted as sons of God, and they, the Spirit, and then the Spirit shall help us cry, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic and carries more than just the connotation of Father. It is the intimate and personal diminutive of the word Father used by children in the family circle. The closest equivalent we have is Papa or Daddy, although neither can really convey fully the impact of the word. The point is that God is not only Father, the formal title and name, but he is also Abba, the parent of love and guidance that knows us intimately and whom we can approach without fear. That was from the New Testament study guide. Now notice in verse 7 here, he's talking about, um, he's going to be talking about our heritage here, and it goes all the way down to verses, uh, down into the end of the chapter practically. Uh, but he says here, wherefore thou art no more a servant or a slave. He's now referring to um, Ishmael, who was the son of Hagar, who was the handmaiden of uh, Sarah, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so he's talking here about Isaac, that we are relatives through Isaac, the covenant side of the family. Um down into verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, in other words, Hagar, 
the other by a free woman, or Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman, which is Ishmael, um, was born after the flesh. Now he's using this uh, analogy or allegory here to show <clears throat> how Ishmael is like the law of Moses and Isaac is like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but he who was the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born after the flesh, or the law of Moses, but he of the free woman was by promise. In other words, he was the covenant relationship. Uh, verse 24, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which is the law of Moses, and which which uh, gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. In other words, the law of Moses was more of a bondage than, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but then 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom, which is the mother of us all. And so he's using this allegory here between Ishmael and Isaac as the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what that's about there. Uh, verse 31, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul uses an allegory, this is from uh, Studies in the Scriptures, uses an allegory to demonstrate the significant advantage of being subject to the gospel over being under the demands of the law of Moses. These two covenants are symbolically identified. The law is referred to as Mount Sinai and the covenant as the heavenly or New Jerusalem. From the first comes bondage under the law of performances and ordinances. But, then, but from the second comes freedom through the fullness of the gospel. The allegory is extended by using the family of Abraham. The Mosaic law is likened unto Ishmael, son of the bondwoman who persecuted Isaac. The Abrahamic covenant is like the son of the free woman, and consequently the first, the law of Moses, was cast out. But Sarah's son came under the Abrahamic covenant and was to inherit all the blessings promised to Abraham. <clears throat> I think that explains that pretty well. It's a good uh, summary of chapter 4. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, in the, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So he's saying there, adhere to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't worry about the law of Moses anymore. Uh, just have faith in Christ and do the works that, uh, that he's requiring now, which is the broken heart and the contrite spirit, which is not what the law of Moses was uh, all about at the time. Uh, down to verse uh, 16, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, keep the commandments after baptism and thus gain the promised companionship of the Holy Ghost. For the flesh lusteth after the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. It is a constant warfare, as Brigham Young said, the spirit that is put into man is pure and holy. But through the power of evil with the flesh, it is more or less contaminated, influenced, seduced, and brought into bondage by the evil that exists upon the earth. Let the spirit overcome and come off conqueror. And so that's the battle that we always have in mortality. Uh, he talks about then some of the fruits of the flesh, which are not, uh, not good. And then he mentions in 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Against such, there is no law, which means if we do these things, uh, there's nothing more important in life. Uh, we don't really need a law because we're already keeping all the laws. Joseph Fielding Smith said there is nothing more important in the lives of members of the church than to have the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so doing these things here, love, peace, long-suffering, joy, so on, these are gifts of the Spirit that are going to help us to maintain the gift of the Holy Ghost constantly with us. 
Verse 26, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Uh, David O. McKay said, man is a dual being and his life a, be a plan of God. That is the first fundamental fact to keep in mind. Man has a natural body and a spiritual body. Man's body, therefore, is but the tabernacle in which his spirit dwells. Too many, far too many, are prone to regard the body as the man, and consequently to direct their efforts to the gratifying of the body's pleasures, its appetites, its passions. So we need to make sure that we are doing the things that the spirit is requiring us to do. All right, chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, or a transgression, or trespass, ye which are spiritual, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering or watching thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So in other words, he's saying if we know of, of somebody that's committed sin, we should help them. Joseph Smith said, I charge the saints not to follow the example of the adversary in accusing the brethren, and said, If you do not accuse each other, God will not accuse you. If you have no accuser, you will enter heaven. And if you will follow the revelations and instructions which God gives you through me, I will take you into heaven as my backload. If you will not accuse me, I will not accuse you. If you will throw a cloak of charity over my sins, I will over yours. For charity covereth a multitude of sins. And then notice in verse 2, a similarity here with the Book of Mormon quote, Be, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, that's a similar quote from Mosiah chapter 18 that we know in the baptismal covenant. Uh, verse 7, uh, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If we sin and say, I'll repent later, uh, that's there, there may not be a later. Verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Um, in the Miracle of Forgiveness, President Kimball said, We must never put a timetable on the Lord. He is the Lord of the harvest, and in due time he will pay those who labor. It is only for us to know that he will be fully rewarded for what we do. Uh, the wicked may prosper for a time, the rebellious may seem to, to profit by their transgressions, but the time is coming when, at the bar of justice, all men will be judged, every man according to their works, no one will, be, will get by with anything. On that day, no one will escape the penalty of his deeds, no one will fail to receive the blessings he has earned. There will be total justice. So we don't have to worry about somebody getting away with something now, because they'll end up getting justice in the next life. <clears throat> So um, that's pretty much uh, the reading for today. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them on the, in the comments section. If you like this podcast, uh, let us know. I bear testimony of the truth of the gospel and how important it is for, the, for us to be unified to, and to adhere to the, the gospel of Christ and to live that higher law. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.